For years now, the utility of the p-value in scientific and statistical research has been under scrutiny. The debate shaped by concerns about the seeming over-reliance on p-values to decide what's worth publishing or what's worth pursuing. In 2016, the American Statistical Association released a statement on p-values meant to remind readers that, quote, the p-value was never intended to be a substitute for scientific reasoning, end quote. The statement also laid out six principles for how to approach p-values thoughtfully. The impact of that statement is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus in Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Robert Matthews. Matthews is a visiting professor in the Department of Mathematics at Aston University in Birmingham, UK. Since the late 1990s as a science writer, he's been reporting on the role of NHST in undermining the reliability of research for a number of publications, including BBC Focus, as well as working as a consultant on both scientific and media issues for clients in the UK and abroad. His latest book, Chancing It, The Laws of Chance and How They Can Work for You, is available now. Some of his research interests include the development of Bayesian methods to assess the credibility of new research findings, what's been called the replication crisis, and the math and science behind urban myths. Matthews also recently wrote a piece for Significance magazine looking back at the ASA 2016 p-value statement. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Before we talk about your article and sort of the ASA statement, I wonder if you could remind listeners of sort of the context that helped produce that original statement and maybe what some of the early responses were to it. Yeah, sure. So the thing that catalyzed that ASA report was the emergence of what's now been called the replication crisis. That is um, a series of studies uh, which attempted to replicate often very highly cited research studies in important areas of research, which were reinvestigated using as closely as possible the original setup. And the results basically um, failed the standard uh, tests of statistical significance more than they were expected to. Um, so the typical threshold for a statistically significant result is a, is a, is a p-value of 1 in 20, which in a sort of hand-waving way people think means that uh, only about 1 in 20 of these uh, positive results is actually the result of fluke. It actually doesn't mean that, but that's another issue doubtless will go into. And these things were failing at like, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60% in some fields of research. And that sparked concern about, well, are we using the right ways of analyzing uh, data emerging from scientific studies? And uh, the ASA uh, decided to, uh, the, the board asked uh, Ron Wasserstein, the executive director of the ASA, uh, to set up a committee to look into the whole issue of p-values with a view to putting out some recommendations. And that's what emerged in March uh, 2016. And the initial response was one of 
amongst the statistics community, well, tell us something we didn't know. I mean, this debate over the unreliability of p-values as a way of deciding whether a result should be taken seriously or not goes back decades. In fact, just a few years after they started to really catch on, which was in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so there's nothing new to the statistics community. Uh, it came as a bit of a shock to those, um, to a lot of, in the scientific community. And it also raised a question amongst them, which was, okay, you've convinced us there's something wrong with p-values. You're telling us there's something wrong. We don't quite understand what it is. But anyway, tell us what we should be doing. And came the answer, non, from the, the raw content of the ASA's public announcement. Um, but that was immediately rectified uh, by uh, Ron Wasserstein and his colleagues, who set up um, you know, a, a famous uh, colloquium, which pulled together all these different ways of uh, going beyond p-values, which is where we are now. I, you know, I think that part of what's going on is that that people are trying to understand how to how to think about this, and 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 you know, within the ASA discussions, there were there was discussions of the fact that these tests are more than just a test of hypothesis. There's embedded in this assumptions about models, assumptions about structure of data, you know, all of which, when when a test is done, might result in some outcome, and so it's it's you know, sort of all of that is kind of being juggled. Is when this is when this is considered, I, I often find you know, there are a number of things that happen. One is that you know how quickly can you teach the nuance of doing something like this? So, given if you have some scientists that have only one bite at the apple of taking an intro of a stack class, and they're going to be employing this for the rest of their careers, what kind of messages can you convey? I mean, one part of the suggestions that I would take away in thinking about this was was the idea of just effect size estimation, right? You know. If, if, if there was one message that I would be communicating, it's that, you know, don't stop at just doing a, a simple, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down in terms of, of some hypothesis you've evaluated. Say how big the effect is. If, if that was kind of the routine expectation, yeah. that seems like that would be a tremendous step forward. And that's relatively simple recommendation. I mean, what do you what yeah. do you think about that, Robert? Uh, well, I think it's a, it's a great idea. It's one that was taken up uh, in medical uh, journals. Yeah. Uh, quite Yeah, epidemiology journals, a lot of them have gone this route. Yeah, and uh, it uh, manifests itself in the confidence intervals, um, which are still open to misinterpretation. It's a, it's a more subtle misinterpretation, but it's still open to it. But it does do something that p-values don't do. P-values throw away so much information that's lurking in the data. So you don't get uh, any idea about effect size. Um, the, the whole thing is just subsumed into this single number. And if it's less than a certain value, then there's something going on. If it's greater than a certain value, then there isn't, which is such a waste. So confidence intervals do more. They basically tell you what's called the point estimate, which is the, the most likely value of the thing you're interested in from the uh, data you've collected, plus a measure of the uncertainty. And you can tell so much more than that. And they develop some techniques that allow these confidence intervals to be unpacked, to tell you all sorts of things about the credibility of the results that you found in the light of what we already know. So undoubtedly, uh, just making that small extra step from p-values to confidence intervals is a huge improvement. Robert, there's a lot of uh, 
suggestions in the significance article about the phrase statistically significant. And, and I'll see really good newspapers like the New York Times will use that phrase to report. We talk about that statistically significant doesn't necessarily mean proof. What I'm interested in is how should journalists report on this if they are going to abandon the term statistically significant? How should they be communicating some of these ideas to the general public? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult question because um, a lot of uh, journalists have problems uh, getting their news editor to accept, uh, you know, an, an interpretation of some finding that goes beyond what's said in a prestigious journal like, you know, Journal of the American Medical Association or New England Journal of Medicine or something like that. And it's sort of playing with fire for a lot of journalists to sort of uh, say, well, it was statistically non-significant, um, but the effect size was clearly showing uh, a benefit here. Um, and statisticians have you know, little problem with that because they know that, you know, basically the problem was that the designers of the trial didn't have enough patience in the trial to give a nice, clear cut result uh, that stood above the noise. And I think one of the most important things that, that journalists can do is, is basically to say that it is it was statistically not insignificant, but nevertheless, the researchers found evidence, uh, some evidence for a genuine effect going on here, a, you know, a genuine beneficial effect or genuine harm. They can say that because there is some evidence. Uh, and that's the thing that so often gets thrown away in using PVAs and things like that. You know, if it's non-significant, they say there is nothing. If there's statistical significance in the result, they say, we've demonstrated this drug works. And neither of those statements is true. You know, this is a, I, I like that, that when you're talking about this, is particularly in your significance piece, when you were re reviewing and, and revisiting this topic, that the idea that there, there needs to be a way perhaps of inoculating researchers against the, the most pernicious effects of NHST. That was, I, I, you know, I like your, I like the way you've described this and how this, this plays out. So can you talk about the idea of, of what kinds of things might be done to help with this, this inoculation as you describe it? Yeah, well, as I say, accepting that um, very often with clinical trials, for example, I mean, the big problem with all clinical trials is um, you have to have a guess at how big the effect is likely to be um, to be able to know how many patients to recruit. Actually, in practice, it all goes the other way. You start with a budget, work how many, work out how many people you can uh, get yeah. into the trial for that, and then assume an effect size, uh, which is usually far too big, much bigger than you would expect to see, because basically you haven't got that many patients to play with. So the whole thing's sort of backwards. But... Uh, in terms of inoculating uh, people, it's this thing of just going beyond pass-fail, you know, the true-false dichotomy. It is so tempting for people to want that degree of black and white and just to get used to the idea that very few studies are ever definitive. The best that most studies can do is to contribute some evidence in the direction of um, some conclusion or another. And then only when we 
either persuade somebody to carry out a huge randomized controlled trial, for example, which we've seen examples of during this COVID uh, pandemic uh, to test uh, whether certain drugs work, um, or we pull the all these little findings together in a meta-analysis to pull all the all the signal that, and uh, and hope it rises above the noise that we're unlikely to know for sure that um, we need to persuade journal editors um, to stop treating the scientific research that they published like you know a newspaper article where you know we show what happened in in you know to some celebrity or whatever. No, it's never like that in science. It's rarely like that. The best we can do is just to accumulate data uh, and accumulate evidence one way or the other. So to wean people off this true, false, yeah, we've we've got something here and it's just the one study. So that's that mystery cleared up. Uh, just to stop them behaving like journalists, which is what so many of the big journals basically do. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Aston University visiting professor Robert Matthews. Robert, as we're having this conversation, I was flashing back to grad school, um, and one of my research methodology classes was taught by a sort of fairy big name figure in my field who's a quantitative scholar. And I remember him talking us through this issue of p-values and how, you know, 0.05 is generally what you would look for, but that doesn't mean you should throw the data away if it's not that, right? But then thinking about the reality of being a young scholar who is working in this environment where that seems to be the threshold that, you know, if you're you're submitting to a journal and sometimes even conferences, if it's not that number, it's hard to get anyone to really pay attention to your research. So I wonder if you have advice for young researchers who are sort of in this environment now, right, where p-values are more visibly under discussion than they've been, but yet there's still like this edifice of sort of scientific practice where it still has been seen as like this this gatekeeping device, right, where um, if it's, if it's 0.05, we let you in. If it's not, we're going to knock you out and not even review you. And I wonder what advice you have for young scholars trying to sort of navigate all of this. Yeah, I, I would say learn some Bayesian methods. Uh, which allow you to go beyond this uh, uh, dichotomy and also to set any res- any finding you you make in context of what's already known. So to add value to you know the uh, the results that you're finding, and if a particular journal can't cope with that, and increasingly they will, um, it's uh, Bayesian methods aren't quite the pariah they used to be even 20 years ago. Um, then um, if they won't accept that, then go to some other journal that will. Um, but you know, Bayesian methods allow you to um, extract much more insight out of a given set of data, and as I say, to set it in context. So they can't complain that you're hiding something, you're not adding value uh, by using these methods. Um, so I would advise everybody to um, uh, who wants to move on beyond p-values uh, to... Do something that's actually quite, <laughs> when I started is actually was quite, actually quite hard, which is to find a relatively simple textbook on Bayesian methods. But now they are really uh, uh, starting to uh, starting to emerge, especially in medical statistics. So I'd recommend that. Hey Robert, uh, to follow up on to to follow up on uh, Rosemary, how much of an obstacle are the prestigious journals that require? I mean, there's a whole system set up here. 
would the change, if it comes, have to be driven by the journals themselves and their editorial no. boards, or is the change going to come from statisticians from the bottom up or scientists? How's that yeah. going to work? Yeah, I think the, the journals have a uh, the big journals have a real issue here because um, in that uh, significance uh, article that you mentioned, um, I cite the example from 2019 of a uh, randomized controlled trial of uh, an approach to treating patients with sepsis, uh, which is a condition that has become all too familiar uh, during the COVID. Pandemics, where basically it's where the body's immune system overreacts, and you need to step in very quickly. So the randomized control trial was set up to investigate two ways of judging whether a patient needed a certain type of treatment to combat sepsis. So this is really important stuff. So they set up a randomized control trial. Uh, they found that the they found that there was a eight to nine percent benefit from using one particular indicator for for treatment rather than the other oh but problem the p-value would just slipped over the 0.05 uh, threshold so they thought well yeah it's, a, it's an important it's an important issue and um, so clearly there's evidence that this method works this method is really widely uh, uh, acceptable, even in countries with, you know, relatively modest healthcare facilities and things like that. And this is an important result. Okay, let's, let's submit it. So they submitted it to the Journal of the American Medical Association. And they got it bounced. And they got it bounced because although it showed a, you know, fairly meaningful 9% improvement, um, which when you're dealing with large numbers of patients is worth having, they, they said the p-value, I'm sorry, it's failed the test. And they said, well, uh, that, that, that's, we still think there's something in it. And they were told, look, you can either say that you didn't find anything or you can just clear off and give it to another journal. Okay. So what do you think they did? And they published uh, their findings and that you can see them in the, in the paper. It's called the Andromeda Shock Trial. It's published in JAMA uh, 2019. And they said um, uh, the results, you know, point to uh, there not being a, a difference here between the two approaches. And yet you can see there's an 8 to 9% improvement. And if you sketch it out on a graph, you don't need p-values or anything to see that there's actually a benefit here. Uh, and yet it went down in the JAMA as being a fail. And then other uh, researchers tuck it up and use Bayesian methods to analyze the, these findings. And they showed that it's 90% likely that there is a benefit from using this approach, this life-saving approach. So, yeah, there's no – and I could cite you loads of other examples where stuff has been – just fundamentally misinterpreted by the referees of these journals. I don't know where they get them from. So they get they get them from their scientific community. Yeah, right. You know, it's all, it's often it's so in some sense what they're doing is replicating their 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 own very basic primitive understanding yeah. of of the data and analyses they do. I yeah. I think that you I mean you raise some really interesting points, and I I'll, uh, I want to follow up on a couple of things. Uh, one is that Rosemary's comment about gatekeeping. I mean, the thing that's beautiful about a simple number in gatekeeping is it's a simple number. 
And I think that if you're looking for just a simple check mark, pass, go, collect $200 or do not pass, go, do not publish. You know, this is kind of the it's a simple rule that people understand. But but in some ways, that understanding is showing this fundamental misunderstanding of science. Exactly. I mean, the sci- you know, your comment about that no single study stands alone resonates. I mean, that's, you know, science, the scientific method is based on the idea of a series of studies and cont- providing context for understanding whether or not these hypotheses are meaningful. Yeah. I mean, so so in some ways to say there's, well, by the way, I'm not an apologist for any perspective on statistics nor for, for you know, for hypothesis testing. I'm a big effect size guy in terms of my, my as a proponent of, of summarizing study results. But but I think that, you know, just maybe this is this, this fundamental understanding of not knowing what science is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're so if you're so wedded to the idea that a single study with a single number that passes some single arbitrary benchmark is definitive, then you don't know what you what this means in terms of the scientific enterprise. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I came into uh, science journalism in the early 80s, um, they seem to be a, a bit more uh, sort of, uh, of a nuanced view. And then sometime around the sort of late 80s, early 90s, something started to happen and, and it became clear that you know a lot of results were being sliced and diced and just thrown out there by people who weren't that bothered whether they'd actually done a good bit of science, but whether they got a publishable unit was the, was the you know, metric of merit. And we've just seen this just get worse and worse. It's led to, you know, all sorts of malfeasance, like, you know, P-hacking where people fail to get a statistically significant P-value. So they rummage around in the data until they find something, anything. And then he's given to a referee who doesn't understand anything and just looks for the P-value. And then like some chimpanzee who's been taught using reward methods just sees, oh, yeah, OK, that P-value is going to the 0.05. OK, reject. You know, what is this? I mean, this is just a parody of science. Well, and, you know, that's, you know, that, that description is one of, you know, like you, I'm glad you mentioned P-hacking because I think that part of what's happened is that it's a lot easier to test lots of hypotheses given some of the tools that we have access to now. And it makes it easier to, easier to torture your data till it confesses. And it's yeah. going to confess to some crime, whether it's a crime it commits. And I think that, you know, all of a sudden this sense of the need to think about registries for hypotheses, you know, sort of in advance about what you're doing and whether whether it's, conf- you know, I guess uh, David Spiegelhalter weighed in on one of your pieces and talked about whether it was an exploratory or confirmatory yeah. uh, summary. I mean, you think these are these are sort of the these are some important uh, dimensions of thinking about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I, the thing that is so frustrating is that the, the public, when they see these results, I mean, this is what put me onto this whole issue in the first place as a science journalist working for uh, national newspapers, firstly the Times and then uh, the Sunday Telegraph in the UK. You know, I started to realise that all these stories about, you know, coffee is increasing your risk of heart attack. Oh, no, it doesn't. It's... it's uh, it's fine. And then, uh, you know, with breast cancer scares and things like that and the pill and the way that the, the research was yo-yoing this way and that. And you could sense from you know, readers' letters and stuff like that, say, oh, another load of nonsense from your science correspondent. And I'm just reporting what was in the journals. And I started to think there's something screwy going on here because my understanding of science is that it converges towards reality by successive approximation. It doesn't just yo-yo around. That's a sign of noise, okay, when something just doesn't converge. 
And uh, it's that that actually led me to get in, get interested in statistics and actually get involved in the trying to find ways of um, of uh, improving the situation. Just and, and it's bringing the whole of size into disrepute because uh, the public just think, ah, you know, just wait a couple of weeks, they'll be telling us that eating bacon's good for us. It's all nonsense. And of course, it isn't all nonsense. It's just the stuff that gets in the journals is often nonsense. It's very frustrating. I, I have a question. John, you can jump in here too. I'll be a, I'm going to pretend to be a general member of the public here. So you've offered Bayesian analysis as one sort of solution. So... First of all, why isn't this more accepted? I don't understand it, first of all, but I also don't understand why, if this is a solution, why isn't it more accepted? Right. Okay, so the great thing about um, the way that you know, statistics is typically done with p-values is that it gives the illusion of objectivity. In other words, you've just got the data, you just feed it into you know some mathematical formulae, and then if you get a, a value that's less than 0.05 you've got a real result and if it's greater than that then it's a load of balonians fit only for the bin it's an illusion it was created by ronald fisher who was one of the founders and undoubtedly a genius and one of the founders of modern statistical methods but he had a problem with the alternative which he knew about and dispensed with in a single paragraph in his famous textbook which was bayesian methods which are much older uh, they date back to the 18th century um, the problem with bayes is that it says it's a rule for saying well you've carried out um, a study it's giving you some data uh, and that data um, should change your uh, whatever your current belief in uh, that hypothesis you're testing by this amount it should either increase it or decrease it and sometimes it'll pretty much leave it alone um, but uh, whatever you used to believe uh, now you can change that and here's the rule for doing that the problem is that you have to start with some prior belief and this led to the myth that well, this means that somebody who believes in ESP can say, well, I'm already totally convinced in the in the existence of telepathy or clairvoyance. So um, I only need to test uh, one person uh, to see if they can guess correctly uh, the colour of these playing cards I'm doing. Uh, and then that's it. I've proved it uh, because your prior evidence was so huge in the first place. It didn't take much extra evidence to tip you over the edge to like 99% uh, conviction that you've got something so and then a skeptic comes uh, and does the same experiment and says well i don't believe in um, esp so i'm starting from a prior probability of you know 10 to the minus 10 that there's anything in this and i've just carried out a massive trial and it's increased the evidence by you know a factor of 10 to the four but i'm still you know 10 to the 6 off the money here. So it's still baloney as far as I'm concerned. So Bayes gives the impression that it may turn science into anarchy, that anybody can reach any result they like. And that's just nonsense because there are so many areas of research now where we have a pretty good feel for what's reasonable and what isn't. And so we can have reasonable insights into prior levels of, of belief into you know what is plausible and what isn't before we collect the data. 
And then if the if we have a you know a nice big study, then frankly, what your prior beliefs were become pretty much immaterial because they are completely blown apart by the strength of evidence you've got from your really impressive study that you've done. An approach that I've been working on that's another way of solving this problem of isn't based just anarchy, allowing you to draw any conclusion you like, is to actually reverse Bayes and to say, okay, we've carried out this study and it's given us this level of evidence. What level of belief would someone already have to hold, like a level of skepticism, to say, well, this result might be statistically significant, but you know what? I still don't believe it. And if the evidence is quite weak, you don't need much skepticism to knock it on the head. Okay, or if the uh, the study is very strong, you know, it's based on lots and lots of data, then you are going to have to be ludicrously, almost irrationally skeptic, skeptical to knock it on the head. So that's another way of using Bayes. It's a way of using Bayes in reverse, where you say, where you ask yourself, what would I have to believe in order to knock this on the head? So, but it's been really difficult for Bayes to shed this idea, which Fisher did nothing to alleviate, that if you let Bayes in through the door, it's just going to be anarchy. People are just going to be making up stuff. It's just not true. I have a question that, and John, I, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, but I wonder how much has the published or perished environment of scientific research perhaps fed this 0.05 situation? Oh, completely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's easy. <laughs> yeah, what, what he said. I think that's, uh, it's, it's, your, it's your pass go. It got you in. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, you know, 10-year or, you know, your next grant proposal rests on, you know, what the, uh, what the kitchen scales say when you stick all your papers on them, then, yeah, of course, uh, it matters to get stuff published and journals say, oh, well, you know, we can't, we're, we're pushed for space. We're only interested in in positive results. We're not interested in you knocking on the head another hypothesis. You know, any number of stuff out there is baloney. We already know that. What we need to know is the stuff that stands up. You know, that's, that's the problem you're faced with. The best and most encouraging sort of development, statistical uh, development that can deal with this, I think, is the idea of registered reports where journals say, you know what, we'll take your research, whether they're statistically significant or not, we will publish them. But you have first got to convince us that the way you are proposing to investigate this hypothesis is rock solid. And that puts the, the emphasis on whether something gets published or not on exactly where it needs to be, which is how credible is this approach to this question? Okay, so all the referee's attention is focused on that. And if it passes muster, and then it still comes up statistically non-significant or significant, then, well, that's, you know, that's a contribution to the evidential um, base that we can, we can rely on because we know it passed muster as a design of experiment. I think that's a great development. Yeah. I, I'm going to weigh in just on one, one comment that came up earlier, and then I have a, a question. And uh, one is that, that in terms of the Bayesian methods, I think that while that might have been a holy war when I was finishing up my graduate study, I think now it's, pretty, it's, it's viewed as just an, it's another tool in the toolbox of practicing statisticians that you should be considering. However, whether it's, it has the kind of penetration into kind of introductory classes, it's probably not. 
I mean, and, and if I said, you know, the, the difference I th that you see with statistics is a scientist says, oh, if I'm going to be a scientist, I need to have four semesters of chemistry to even start thinking about being a biologist. You only need one semester of statistics to start thinking about doing this. So, so really, you know, if you're going to set a higher bar for this kind of competence and nuance, then you have to have a higher bar in terms of what you'd expect in terms of your preparations. So that's kind of a weighing in on that part of it. The second is, Robert, I think that, that you have, you know, in terms of the inoculation, I, I think you, you know, when you've been discussing this, I have a challenge here. And it's every one of these journals need to do a, a, a multiple case study collection where they have two articles that they analyze by three different methods. You know, like you like you were doing with that one trial. I mean, I think in essence, it has to be kind of this compare, you know, it's, it's sort of composition, first year composition, compare and contrast. You know, that there has to be an opportunity to say, okay, here's the kind of data that we often see in our work. Let's approach this from a couple of different strategies and let's compare the results. And if you have dramatically different answers depending upon the method, you know, then you might worry some, or maybe not. Maybe it's clear what should be done. But I think part of it is there has to be kind of this demonstrated practice where it matters to a scientist or where it matters to that community. So I'm, I mean, I think that what you were starting and, and discussing with significance is a takeoff point that you could say, okay, you know, psych, you know, cognitive psychology journal, social psychology, sociology, gerontology, you pick, you know, biology, whatever you, you know, pick all the disciplines, media, journalism, and film, you know, I'll, I'll talk to my friends. Okay. You know, media studies, if you're doing quantitative research in media studies, you know, having a series of kind of comparisons where this, the same data set is approached from multiple strategies with kind of the insights that are gleaned might be one of the ways to help with kind of this uh, customized inoculation. Yeah, it could, uh, it could well be something in that. Um, although I, I do um, struggle to see the benefits of assessing whether a result is statistically significant or not. Fair enough. I think we could drop that. Uh, what we could do is make p-values work harder, which is something that a number of statisticians, notably Sander Greenland, have been working on, which is, is you work out p-values according to a number of different hypotheses. And so you can put a probability, it's not just a threshold, there's a whole range of p-values uh, that allow you to assess the compatibility of your finding with a whole different set of a whole range of uh, hypotheses, which I think is a fascinating idea. You don't have to know anything more than uh, uh, some you know, pretty basic stats to be able to do that calculation. It's so much more informative. The amount of waste of information that has gone on over the decades uh, by this insistence on, you know, on P-values, it, it just defies belief. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Robert, thank you so much for being here today. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Robert. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Statistics.